Well, good morning, everyone. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church, and we are really, really glad to see everyone this morning. So uh, if I ask you what the story behind the United States National Anthem, the Star Spangled Banner was, um, what would you say? What would you say the story behind the song is? I mean, you might recall that it was written by, anybody know? Francis Scott Key, very good, right? Um, and you maybe, if you, if you studied a little bit beyond that, you would know that he wrote it while he was being um, held by the British in Baltimore Harbor. Thank you, Leslie. And as he was watching the British bombardment of Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor. If you really dug deep, what you would find is that originally he wrote it, it wasn't a song. It was a poem. And it was published by his brother-in-law, who was commander, one of the commanders at Fort McHenry. And they published it as a poem in the newspaper, and it was only later set to music as a song. But I, I doubt you think about any of these things when you see Michael Phelps up once again on the podium and the song plays behind him. You're not thinking of Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor or Francis Scott Key, are you? I mean, no. This, this anthem for many Americans has come to symbolize so much more. Even though it was written for a very specific event at a very specific time, it's come to stand for victory snatched out of the jaws of defeat. It comes to stand in our, in our collective mentality for, for Valley Forge and, and Gettysburg and, and the different battles. It's, it's come to symbolize even athletic victories and summer days spent at the baseball field. It's evocative of something more, much more, than that specific event. Well, that's a little bit how the psalm this week works for us. Surely the psalm we study, 124, is referencing a specific time that the author, and it's ascribed to David, when he speaks of the flood and when he speaks of escaping the trap, he was thinking of a specific time where he was in danger, where God came through and ultimately rescued them. But as the people, the Israelites, sang this as they went up to the Temple Mount, as they were on their way up, to the temple, they probably weren't thinking of those things that David was thinking of at that time. It had come to symbolize something much more. And in that same way that it came to symbolize much more for them, I believe it can do the same for us if, if we let it change our framework. So pray with me as we start our study this week. Jesus' life doesn't stop, you know that. But sometimes it slows down. It slows down on a morning like this where we can gather together and lay aside our concerns and our distractions, 
our needs and sit together in community and listen to the Spirit and your Word. And I pray that's what happens this morning is that we hear your Spirit through your words, through the worship, through our conversations this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So those of you who are visiting, we're working through the first half of the Psalms of Ascent this summer. Uh, We'll wrap up in a couple weeks. And the Psalms, these were songs that is traditionally thought the people would sing at the three different times of year when they would go up to Jerusalem for worship for the festivals. We're at Psalm 124 this week. And it starts this. It says, if God hadn't been for us, all together now, Israel, sing out. If God hadn't been for us when everyone went against us. This is a call and response song. Again, we've talked about this, that I'm up here, you know, speaking in words when we really ought to be singing these things. They're they're songs. They're meant to be sung. They're meant to, to be evocative of something beyond what we can just think of when we just read words on a page. And I love that part here, you know, all together now. You can, hear him, you can hear one guy walking along, right? Almost like a cadence march, and he sings it out all together now. We would have been swallowed alive by their violent anger, swept away by the flood of rage, drowned in the torrent. We would have lost our lives in the wild, raging water. Oh, blessed be God. He didn't go off and leave us. He didn't abandon us defenseless, helpless as a rabbit in a pack of snarling dogs. We've flown free from their fangs, free of their traps, free as a bird. Their grip is broken, and we're free as a bird in flight. God's strong name is our help, the same God who made heaven and earth. Now let's quickly note here a number of things about this. First of all, that this is not a song that denies the reality of threat, of danger, and of suffering. This is only a psalm that works with a people who have a well-developed theology of suffering. We'll save a deeper look into that for later. Because before we get to that, we have to peel back even a little bit further and examine three concepts or three Elements of a framework for this psalm to work. We need to see this also as this is not a song sung in the midst of trauma. As we read, as we study these, as we see the full expanse of the song, we see the full range of human emotions. We see the songs of desperation. We see the songs of victory. We, see, we hear the songs of questioning. We hear the songs of answering. And we need to place this song and understand that this is a song that has the perspective of time. This is a song that is reflective, looking back. It's not in the midst of the trial. This was not sung in the midst of the trauma or the challenge but something that reflected on it from a position of time and space with that. And I say that to say this, especially as we've encountered these past few weeks with people who are 
encounter trauma, don't give this song to someone in the midst of their suffering. Don't come up to someone who is overwhelmed with grief, who is confused by trauma, and say, hey, buck up there, matey. God will deliver you. God's always delivered us. God, I I get it. I get it. I do. We want to help. I know that. But this is, this is a song that is sung away from that. It's true in it. It doesn't mean it's not true in the midst of suffering. But it's, it's a song about deliverance. It's not one when you're in the midst of the trial with that. Except maybe in a way that we'll see plays out later on. So, why sing this song at all then? If we can't use it, if we can't apply it in the midst of the trial, why sing it at all? Because it is one, it is praise to look back over deliverance, but it is also to prepare for those times of suffering. It is to prepare us that when those inevitable trials come, that it is a song that will be embedded so deep in us that while we may not be able to mouth the words, it is being sung inside us. So what are the changes that have to take place? What are the framework, the basic elemental framework for this to work? Because we've talked about it before. Look, Israel spent most of its time harried and harassed, conquered and crushed. Israel's glory (laughs) kingdom David and Solomon and a few others is a blip on the timeline of Israel's existence. For most of the time, they are, I mean, traditionally, again, we've talked about it, they're the Chicago Cubs of nations in this area, the perennial losers in this region. So why why would they be singing this? Well, first of all, we have to understand that that this song changes the past. Generally, we think of history as something interesting, but mostly unimportant. I'm speaking of modern Americans here. Pretty much irrelevant to our everyday lives. We treat it as a subject to be studied or ignored, a setting for a certain movie or book, but not something that is part of us, not something that we inhabit. Not so the people of Israel and those who were singing the song. They had a very different concept of and relationship to their history. They regarded it as alive, very much part of their present. And this doesn't really sit well with us as modern, rational Americans. We like to... We like to think of us as being in control of history. Like what happened in the past is in the past. I get to decide what's going to happen now. I'm in control. And we, and we make this artificial break with history to our own hurt. But history changes History changes when we start to think of ourselves as part of a bigger story. 
that we didn't create and we can't really control. When there are testimonies and lessons and presence in what God has done in the past and how it is never really in the past, but in a very real way, constantly shaping our present. When we begin to understand and inhabit history this way, we start to think and relate to it very differently. God starts to become bigger. Our ancestors start to become more real. Our heritage starts to have more meaning and value. And in a strange way, we become at the same time both less important as we relate to history, while understanding also we are more important because of what we've received in that. You see, if, <clears throat> if you have no sense of history, then those words are just nice to sing. They don't carry any weight. They don't have any meaning. For Israel, they had meaning. For Israel, they remembered the events, and they understood the influence that it had for them in that day. And that, that gave importance and gravity to their existence there in the now. So it changed history. The other thing it did is it also changes our orientation. Now, there's a lot of talk about orientation changing these days. The one I'm talking about here is about from an individualistic orientation to a communal orientation. Orientation is the place from which we view the world. It's the place which we draw all things back to. It's the thing against which we judge things as good or bad, relevant or irrelevant. We, again, as most modern Americans, judge everything from an individualistic viewpoint. And as we're going to talk about, that's not, that's not necessarily bad. Unfortunately, for most of us, it's really unbalanced. Israel understood their, their identity as collective, as a people. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You know, to read the Bible correctly, we have to read it as Southerners. So often when it says you in the Bible, what it really means is y'all. However, they must be Yankee editors, didn't seem fit to put that in there. But it is the collective voice. That collective voice is here. It's throughout the Psalms. It's throughout Scripture. And we need to hear that. We, our orientation needs to change to understand that we, y'all, us, are God's people called together for His purpose and His glory. And that while... It's a fascinating study of history and philosophy and theology about how the concept of the individual developed over time from the teaching of the Bible and the teaching of Jesus. I doubt anybody could argue effectively that we haven't swung too far to the individualistic orientation. That we become so enamored, so rooted in judging everything by our individual experience that it has done so to the tremendous detriment of community, and ultimately of ourselves with that. This psalm doesn't work for the individual. And we'll talk about why in a minute. It only works for the communal. 
The last thing that we need to look at is that this changes the future. Israel's imagination was constantly occupied with generations to come. Current circumstances were inseparable from what had happened in the past and what it meant for the future. This is increasingly difficult for us to imagine in our all-that-matters-is-right-now YOLO society. We have become so accustomed to the pressure. I see this so often, y'all. The pressure that we have in our society that, that you have to have it all now. That it has to be perfect now. That if you can't, if you can't pin it or post it and everybody give it thumbs up, likes, and kudos, it's that you're a failure. That something's wrong. And that's the pressure that comes in large degree from being, being de- detached from a vision for the future. From just having some kind of foggy idea about what may happen, but we really don't know. Listen, Israel had a very specific vision of where they were going. They sung and wrote and memorized and prayed the promises of God about their future. They were living towards a vision that many of them understood they would never see. They themselves would never see. But that didn't mean that it was nonetheless going to happen. It just may happen in future generations. You see, this psalm only works for us if we similarly see that, that God is going to do what God said God would do. God is going to accomplish what God says God will accomplish. That we have a future and a hope that is secured by the promises of God, even if we may not see it in this lifetime. That it will happen. And the amazing thing about that is, is that it actually gives us freedom. It opens space for us then to... Breathe. We can start to be content. We can start to understand. We can be free from the frenetic striving to have it all and have it all now. If there's anything that breaks a prosperity gospel, it's this. This idea that God is yet faithful, even if our individual experience doesn't necessarily line up with what we think that should be. And that's kind of the elephant in the room when we talk about things like this. What about those people that didn't fly free as a bird? What about those of us who have felt abandoned, left behind, ignored? What about those in our, of us who our individual experience um, 
we would have to sing this through gritted teeth if we were able to sing it at all. Well, there's only one way I know through that. And it's by what we talked about here. Letting go of that previous framework of an irrelevant history, an individualistic orientation, and a foggy future. And instead, leaning into the Psalms and the alternative reality it opens up to us, a kingdom consciousness. And I say this, I say this knowing that it is not only not easy, but at times will be impossible. It will be impossible for that individual at times to do that. But that is where community comes in. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is why, that is why it is essential to be rooted together so that we can believe for those who in the moment cannot believe. We can have faith for those who in the moment cannot have faith. We can sing praise for those who in the moment cannot sing praise. And here's the thing with this. That's what creates the very thing we need. It's those circumstances of trial, of being overwhelmed, that create the faith that ultimately deliver us. Faith is not manufactured in times of ease. Faith is not strengthened in the rest. The strength, the faith that ultimately delivers us come from the very thing that assails us with that. We, we kind of establish it later. See, I think it's happening in those times. We don't feel it. We're not aware of it. It, doesn't, it feels the furthest thing from faith, doesn't it? In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the, of the temptation, in the midst of being overwhelmed, you don't feel the faith. But it's there. It's being created. And it's, it's the months, maybe the years later, when we have the time and the gift, the perspective, that we can look back and we can solidify that. We can vocalize it. We can establish it. But that comes later. That comes later. And that's what they were doing with this psalm. Is they were in the place where they could look back and they could, and they could cherish the faith that was created when they were almost overcome. They could understand the faith that was planted when they felt like there was no escape. That it would never end. It was only with that perspective that they'd started to see that all history was working, that God was behind it, that in their immediate, they were given a community. They were given an identity within a people that would sustain them, and they got a vision for the future that they could move towards and live into. 
Listen, this is not the song of an easy life or a gilded path, but of experienced horror and coming face to face with destruction. But it is also a song of and yet. And yet. We as the church are called to be a collective reinforcement of what we proclaim to be true, what we declare in our faith, in spite of and especially in our times of doubt, discouragement, and temptation. This is a song of witness. It's not apology and it's not propaganda. It is not media spin on a bad situation to cover up God's rear. Peterson says this. He says, The song is so vigorous, so confident, so bursting with what can only be called reality that it fundamentally changes our approach and our questions, changes our framework. The psalmist is not a person talking about the good life, how God has kept him out of all difficulty. This person has gone through the worst. The dragon's mouth, the flood's torrent, and finds themselves intact. They were not abandoned, but helped. The final strength is not of the flood or the oppressor, but in God who didn't go off and leave them. And he hasn't gone off and left us. I know I mentioned the podium stand earlier. And the Americans are, uh, they're cleaning up, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's a little bit, it's almost getting to the point where it's like, seriously, should we call the mercy rule on the Olympics, you know, with the stuff? But I want to give you another image. I've been captivated by the story of this uh, refugee team at the Olympics, and specifically the, the swimmer from Syria, who just literally months, many months ago, was escaping for a life, pushing a boat of fellow refugees across the Mediterranean to try to find freedom. And they march into this game. It's the first time that, that a team has marched in with no flag except the Olympic flag. No identity of a specific country, but of a situation, a reality. And they competed. They haven't won any medals. They're not expected to, I don't think. But they've done far more than that. I wonder, I wonder about the experience. You know, I wonder about the experience of the the dominant athlete who walks away with all the bling and how they're going to reflect on the Olympics and how that swimmer is going to reflect on the same games and what was accomplished there. And I think as a church, we, we need that similar shift. We need that similar shift to, to understand what's really happening to understand what it really means to have a history, to be part of a community not defined by what we own or what we win or where we live, our skin color or our passport says, but defined by the, the God who has saved us. And then to look forward to a future 
that is established and certain. I think that's the song we need to sing. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to open this time of worship by inviting you to to come to the table. You don't have to be the fastest runner, the highest jumper, the best swimmer to come to this table. This table is open to everyone because Jesus is available and made himself available to us all. And as you come and you receive these elements, you receive this gift. Know that every single one of us comes to this table as equals. None is more worthy. None is in a higher position. We are all saved by the Son and welcomed at this table. The same God calls us and knits us together. And during this time also as we sing and we worship and reflect, we'll take up an offering. Excuse me. We'll take up an offering, and if you need prayer, find someone now that you trust. You can find one of the community group leaders, or elders, or just someone you know and trust, and spend that time, and then we'll finish at the end with our benediction. So thank you for being here this morning.